0: Hello listeners, my name is Veronica Kim, and you are now listening to Unity in Christ. Recently, I had a chance to meet some acquaintances that I had not seen in a while for dinner. To be honest, I thought that all of them were non-believers until this time together. As I began to hear their stories, I found out that most of them had attended church in the past, but they decided to leave the church for reasons they didn't share. What they did say was that they left the church feeling disappointed and hurt. When I hear these kinds of stories, I am always filled with sadness. My sadness only doubled as we continued to share. I felt that each one of them longed to fill a void in their hearts and they didn't know how to fill it. I understood what all of them are feeling because I felt the same longing or thirst as her. A hunger for something without a purpose nothing that fills you up enough to rejoice, a feeling of insecurity about the future, and not being able to feel satisfaction or comfort from anything or anyone, when, in the past, I did not know God completely. As I spent time with all of them, I couldn't help but feel that there truly is no hope for mankind without God. There is no way for us to feel that thirst in our lives all alone. But we, as humans, still try our best to fill that void by working hard and trying our best, believing that we are able to reach fulfillment on our own. As I was thinking of all this, I remembered what God said to the people of Israel in Jeremiah, chapter two, verses eleven to thirteen: "Has a nation changed gods when they were not the gods? But my people have changed their glory for that which does not profit." Be appalled, O heavens, at this, and shudder, be very desolate, declares the Lord. For my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, to hew for themselves cisterns, broken cisterns that can hold no water. Back when Jeremiah was living in Israel, a cistern served a very important purpose in their lives. Archaeologists have found thousands of these cisterns in Israel. Some are still around today. Because they lived in the desert, where it did not rain for months, they dug a hole underground and lined it with bricks so that they could collect the rainwater. Even though there were many cisterns, they usually burst and were no longer able to hold water. Many times the water in the cistern turned bad. That is why when the people heard Jeremiah, they would have probably said, Why would anyone dig a cistern next to a fountain that provides you with clean water? They would have thought that was a foolish thing to do. But God was telling them that they were like those foolish people. They were foolish people that had forsaken God, their fountain of living waters, and made themselves broken cisterns that could not hold any water. But if you listen to God's words carefully, it doesn't seem like He is only talking to the people of Israel we too may be behaving like the foolish people of Israel.
1: It's
2: there in the newborn cry There in the light of every sunrise There in the shadows of this life Your great grace It's there on the mountain tall There in the everyday and the mundane
0: In the book of John, there was a Samaritan woman who looked for hope in life through different men. She was deserted by five different husbands and continued to look for someone to give her hope in life. Even when she met her sixth man, she was not able to fill her thirst in life. Every time she met a husband, her hopes and dreams were shattered. All five of her husbands, like the cisterns, broke and leaked the water. None of them were able to hold the water for her. John says that when Jesus traveled from Judea to Galilee, he had to travel through Samaria. It was so that he could meet this woman. He traveled to Samaria where Jewish people did not travel. He traveled through the hot desert to find that woman. Jesus tells her of water that will never make her thirst from John chapter four, verse fourteen: "But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him shall never thirst." But the water that I will give him will become in him a well of water springing up to eternal life. The Bible says that after meeting Jesus, the woman leaves her water bowl behind and runs to the people in her town and tells them all about Jesus, their Savior. This is because she met Jesus, the well of water springing up to eternal life, and she will never thirst again. If you think about it, we all may have our own cistern in our lives. We tend to lean on someone that is near to us, like our significant other or our children, instead of God. We enjoy seeking happiness and satisfaction from them more than God. We tend to trust in our bank account balances or in our own abilities and successes more than God. When we are faced with difficult times, we do not seek God's wisdom, but we tend to lean on our own experiences and knowledge, or turn to someone that has more experience or knowledge in the situation. Of course, those things are not always bad or evil on their own. God uses those things from time to time. The problem comes when we use those things like the broken cisterns instead of the well of the water for eternal life. God must be so frustrated watching us live our lives this way.
3: All around me, when mountains stand in the path I see, I look to love that's unfailing. I look to grace that is all I need. Oh, crawl, crawl. Christ, the only name I say, for there is no one like our God, there's no one like our God, there's nothing that can stand against you, there's no stronghold you can't break, no life that you can't save, i will guard your name.
4: Pour
0: Next is Sermon by Pastor Mark Martin of Calvary Community Church in Phoenix, Arizona. Today's topic is Jesus, God the Son, Part 2, based on Hebrews chapter 1. I hope you have a blessed time with Pastor Mark.
5: Now look at Revelation 21, verse 6. Revelation 21, verse 6, verse 5 rather. And he who sits on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. And he said, write, for these words are faithful and true. And he said to me, it is done. Read. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. So Jesus, or the the Lord God is saying, I am the Alpha, I am the Omega. I'm making a new heavens, new earth, as was predicted there. We read it in the book of Isaiah, actually. He's going to roll up the whole heavens and universe as a scroll. Now, as we look back at Revelation 2, there can be no doubt that this title of first and last is used by the Lord Jesus Christ himself. Look at what it says in Revelation 2, verse 8. The Lord Jesus is speaking to the martyr church of Smyrna, and he says, And to the angel of the church in Smyrna writes, The first and the last who was dead and has come to life, says this. Okay, back off just for a minute. What did we read in Isaiah 41 four? God Almighty the Lord is the first and the last. In Isaiah 44, verse 6, we read again that the Lord, the King of Israel, and the Lord, our Redeemer, the Lord of hosts, is the first and the last. Then we read again that the Lord, the one who created everything, is the first and the last in in Isaiah 48, 12. And then in Revelation 1, just over a column, verse 8, the Lord God, the Almighty, says he's the first and the last. Now we read Jesus saying, I am the first and the last. And there's no problem with a misidentity here because he says... I was the one who was dead and has come to life. Jesus is claiming the divine title. Reading to Revelation chapter 1. Look at verse 17. The apostle John says, Revelation 1:17, when I saw Jesus, I fell at his feet as a dead man, and he laid his right hand upon me saying, "Do not be afraid. I am what? The first and the last and the living one. I was dead. Behold, I'm alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death and of hell. And I have to say, yay! How about you? Praise the Lord. This is great. So we see, just using this one title, the first and last, we understand that Jesus is God. He has a title that God uses throughout the Old Testament. And then we also understand looking at some other important scriptures in the New Testament the deity of Jesus Christ I just want you to see Acts chapter 20 verse 28 I just think these help I just want you to understand Jesus is God and you say I believe it well believe it some more Acts 20 verse 28 very serious passage of course after the Apostle Paul had been in Ephesus here for years teaching them from house to house now he's saying farewell And he leaves the Ephesian elders with these very important words and concepts. He says, I know that after, uh, be on guard for yourselves and for all the flock among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to shepherd the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. He says, I want you to guard the flock which, has been, which is the church of God, which he, and the he is who? God, has purchased with his, with his own blood. Who shed his blood? Jesus. Jesus, therefore, is God. Amen? Jesus is God. Now look at Titus chapter 2. Titus chapter 2, verses 13 and 14. Looking for the blessed hope and the peering Of the glory of our what great Great God and Savior Christ Jesus who gave himself for us that he might redeem us from every lawless deed who died to redeem us Jesus and he's called the our great God and Savior Jesus Christ the one who redeemed us our great God and Savior go over to uh, let's go over to uh, first Peter for just a second I just want to look at the top of 2nd Peter 1 verse 1 and this you know it's kind of just a simple greeting but in the greeting there's this nugget of truth that just shines brightly he says Simon Peter a bondservant and Apostle of Jesus Christ to those who have received a faith of the same kind as ours by the righteousness of our God and Savior Jesus Christ Our God and Savior Jesus Christ It's not saying of our God over there Oh and our Savior who is less than God Jesus Christ The Greek indicates that it's the one and same person Our God and Savior Jesus Christ Look at John 20 verse 28 Now going to the John 20 verse 28 This is after the resurrection Jesus it has appeared once, and then he appears a week later on Sunday, by the way. Every occurrence that we have of the Lord's appearing to his disciples, every time it's recorded that we know the day, it's always the first day of the week. It's not on Saturday. It's on Sunday. It's as if the Lord's saying over and over in those, what is it, eight resurrection appearances that we have recorded, he's saying, I, I'm, I'm giving special honor to this new covenant day. The day of resurrection was always the eighth day, the day after the seventh, the day of resurrection. Um, that's pretty cool. And so Jesus appears a week later again on a Sunday, and verse 26 says, after eight days, he, his disciples were inside, and Thomas had missed church because, I'm putting in the vernacular, of course, he wasn't there because he was bummed out, and he missed the blessing, Right? You always miss the blessing when you're not at church you always do it never fails you know I'm not there and somebody oh that was the best service we've ever had in 15 years you know oh yeah you know that's the one I missed and so they had said the Lord is resurrected the Lord is risen from the dead oh we're so excited and Thomas said I doubt that right and so Jesus appeared a week later and uh, I like his words he's the doors were shut everything was locked up tight and yet Jesus appears he doesn't need doors he doesn't need to to walk through uh, a door Jesus stood in their midst and he didn't say shame on you he said peace be with you then he said to Thomas reach here your finger and see my hands and reach here your hand and put it into my side and be not believing be not unbelieving rather but be believing he says, stop your unbelief, Thomas, come on. And Thomas had to be, lots going through your brain at that, at that moment. Somebody says every, every second there's seven billion things your brain does. Can you imagine how many billion were going on when he's <clears throat> putting that all together? Oh, you heard what I said a week ago? Uh, uh-oh. You know, that's a lot of processing going on right there. And Thomas' response is very significant because Thomas answered and said to him, my Lord and my God. Now the Greek actually says and it's significant that even in a Jehovah's Witness interlinear Bible, that is the Greek with the English underneath, they have done a lot to doctor their translation, take out all references to the deity of Christ. But they haven't done it in all the, the references because you just it's hard to mess with the Bible that much. It's interesting that in the interlinear, there, where the exact words are under the Greek and exact word for word English, it actually says, Thomas says, and what the Greek says is, the Lord of me and the God of me. It says, my Lord and my God. And it means, the Lord of me and the God of me. And he's not, he's not cussing and swearing. He's not saying, oh, my Lord. But he's saying, the Lord of me and the God of me. He's saying, you are my Lord. You are my God. And Jesus, of course, if this was inappropriate to acknowledge Jesus as God, Jesus would have said it at this moment. Uh-oh, oh, no, 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 let me correct this because I don't want the Christian church to be off for the next 2,000 years. I don't want them to be off worshiping me when they shouldn't be because I'm just an angel, I'm just the firstborn, I'm just a begotten one. No, he totally received the worship because... He is worthy of the worship. He is the first and the last. He is God, the Son. He is the Almighty One. He's the wonderful Counselor, the Prince of Peace, the Everlasting Father, the Mighty God. That's who He is. And so He's worthy of the worship. He should receive it. Jeremiah chapter 23 is uh, the first one of the last passages that I want to take you to there are many others this is by no means uh, all of them of course John 1 1 in the beginning was the Word and the Word was with God and the Word was God the same was in the beginning with God all things were created by him without him was not anything made that was made Jesus is God he's the creator so many other passages I didn't take you to the passages in John where Jesus says he is the I am I don't know, maybe I'll do that. But I want you to see this one in Jeremiah 23, verse 5. I like this one because I like Jesus' name. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord. And you see the capital L-O-R-D? Okay, that's Yahweh. That's the Holy One of Israel. This is the Creator God behold the days are coming declares the Lord when I shall raise up for David a righteous branch who's the branch come on Jesus is the branch and he will reign as king and act wisely and do justice and righteousness in the land look at verse 6 in his days Judah will be saved and Israel will dwell securely And this is his name by which he will be called, he will be called Yahweh Sidkenu. That's the Hebrew word, Yahweh Sidkenu. It's T-Z-I-D-E-N-U, Sid, like the pizza sound. Say pizza, pizza. Now say Sid, Sidkenu, say that. Sidkenu, that's righteousness, the Lord our righteousness. Let's say that, Yahweh Sidkenu. One more time, Yahweh Sidkenu. Jesus' name is Yahweh Sidkenu. Now, if he's not Yahweh, why is Yahweh calling him Yahweh? It doesn't make sense. You see, you have to do all sorts of contortions to get away from what the Bible just Clearly presents as truth and why wouldn't we want Jesus to be God what do we have to gain how could an angel die for us an angel's life is not eternal an angel's life does not have the value to cancel out all the sins that of the whole world only the life of God could do that otherwise an angel would just be like another lamb. An angel's a created being. And angels just would be a very exalted lamb, substitute. Jesus is God. And because he is God, his atoning sacrifice is enough for our sins. And you see, this is where the author of Hebrew is headed. Hebrews is, Jesus is better than the Old Testament. Sacrifices and he's establishing the Lord's credential. He is the better sacrifice because he is the perfect, divine, eternal sacrifice that can forever blot away and take away our sins. If he isn't God, you cannot be saved. I cannot be saved because his sacrifice isn't sufficient, it's not eternal and our sin against God is an eternal thing it has to be judged eternally but Jesus is God and so we can rest in the sufficiency of his sacrifice and we can know beyond the shadow of a doubt that our sins are forgiven and we stand right before God because he is the Lord our righteousness I don't stand before God in my righteousness I'm covered with Christ's righteousness I'm covered with Yahweh Sidkenu the Lord my righteousness oh how I praise him
1: honor him
5: exalt his holy name Lord we thank you so much for the truth of who you are we worship you Lord Jesus honoring you as the preeminent one the exalted one the first and the last beloved of the Father The worthy lamb, the one who is worthy of all blessing and honor and glory and power forever and ever. Lord, we can hardly wait until the time when we will stand before you and with myriads and myriads, billions of angels, millions and billions of redeemed saints will fall before you and we will worship you. And we will say there as we say here, oh Lord, my Lord and my God, the Lord of me, the God of me, we worship you. We praise you. We thank you for your sufficiency, Lord. You're better, better than anyone could ever imagine. Thank you, Lord, that you receive our worship and you accept the sacrifice of praise from our lips
2: to God in need of anything we can give by your plan that's just the way it is And find all the programs of Heart and Soul on podcast. You can easily play this week's or past week's programs, or you can even download them to your device just in a few minutes. Try to search for Heart and Soul at your iTunes store now.
0: Following is a program on the Sermon on the Mount.
1: Hello listeners, this is Brian Winston, your host for the Sermon on the Mount. During our last episode, we learned about Jesus' Sermon on the Mount and its background, audience, content, purpose, and more. We learned that even though Christians are living in the world with non-believers, we should live our lives distinguished and separate from them. We also learned that both the Old Testament and the New Testament share the same message, that we should be holy holy for God is holy. And lastly, I shared that the Sermon on the Mount is Jesus' word on teaching what the inner righteousness of God's people is. Today we will look at the beginning part of the Sermon on the Mount, which is the Beatitudes. Let's begin with Matthew chapter 5 verse 3. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. The word blessed is used repeatedly in the Beatitudes. In Greek, blessed is makarios, which means blessed or happy. So what do you think blessing means? The dictionary defines the word blessing as a special favor, mercy, or benefit, thereby bringing happiness. Therefore, when we come across this word, we think of a condition in which people are wealthy, healthy, and without any worries, So looking at somebody's life, people might say things like, Wow, that person's life is blessed. Or there are no blessings in that person's life. However, does the Bible have the same definition for the word blessing that the world has? This is a very important matter because if we want to be blessed with the world's idea of blessings and have a right relationship with God, we will not get the blessings we expect to receive. There is a difference between saying, I believe in Jesus and I am blessed and saying, I believe in Jesus and became rich. Also, there is a difference in saying, I believe in Jesus and was healed as opposed to saying, I believe in Jesus and all is well. Although the same words are used, the meaning and the concepts are not the same. I cannot possibly explain all of the blessings in the Bible one by one since the meaning is too broad and deep. However, to summarize them in one phrase, the blessings in the Bible mean abiding in God. God created the world and began to bless the world. The creation of the universe was all under God's control and under His care. That is a blessing. Now that we are finished with the concept of blessings, let's go back to the Sermon on the Mount. You probably know that Jesus is not speaking about materialism or worldly things in the Sermon on the Mount. The promised blessing in the Beatitudes are all spiritual and are related to God, such as theirs is the kingdom of heaven, they shall be comforted, or they shall see God. The Beatitudes starts with a verse that says, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. It ends with a verse that said, Blessed are those who have been persecuted for the sake of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. The heaven mentioned in here not only refers to heaven after death, but also refers to God's kingdom here on earth that began through Jesus. Believers of Jesus who are born again of the Spirit would experience God's presence and live under his control so we could experience the blessings promised by Jesus in our lives and more fully in the future. Actually, these verses don't mean that you do such and such actions to get more blessed. It's more like you are blessed because you are poor in spirit. So the Beatitudes are not talking about our feelings, but how Jesus thinks of us and what kind of people we are because of it. Now let's take a look at what it means to be poor in spirit. The original meaning of poor is living like a beggar, dependent on others. Those who are poor in spirit admit and confess their brokenness to God. Romans chapter 3 verse 23 says, "All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God." And Romans 6:23 says, "The wages of sin is death." We who are poor in the spirit Realize that we are destined to die and that we cannot live without God's help, so we have to beg spiritually. We admit all these facts to God and humbly ask for His mercy. God takes care of the poor in spirit. Isaiah 57.15 says, I dwell on a high and holy place, and also with the contrite and lowly of spirit in order to revive the spirit of the lowly, and to revive the heart of the contrite. Isaiah also says in chapter 66, verse 2, To this one I will look, to him who is humble and contrite of spirit, and who trembles at my word. To those who are poor in spirit and humble in heart, God promises to revive their spirit and to take care of them. Let's see the difference between those who are poor in spirit and those who are not. In Luke chapter 18 verses 9 through 14, Jesus teaches in a parable about this concept. And he also told his parable to some people who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and viewed others with contempt. A Pharisee and a tax collector went up into the temple to pray. The Pharisee stood and was praying to God, listing his good deeds. He prays and thanks God that he is not like other people, swindlers, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. But the tax collector, standing some distance away, was even unwilling to lift up his eyes to heaven, but was beating his breast saying, God, be merciful to me, the sinner. After Jesus tells this parable, he says in verse 14, I tell you, This man went to this house justified rather than the other, for everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but he who humbles himself will be exalted. The Pharisee listed many meritorious deeds and was full of himself in front of God, but the tax collector was humble and only asked for God's mercy. Jesus is saying that people like this tax collector are the poor in spirit, and that the kingdom of heaven is theirs. These people ask for God's mercy and acknowledge that they cannot do anything by themselves to own the kingdom of heaven. In other words, they're not saved because of their good deeds, but they are promised the kingdom of heaven because of God's grace. That is why our deeds cannot be the credentials to receive God's blessings in the Beatitudes. Spiritual qualities, such as those who are poor in spirit, who mourn, who are gentle, who are hungry and thirsty for righteousness, are personalities of people who abide in God. The Beatitudes are not based on our righteousness and wholeness, but based on God's grace. Today we took a look at Matthew chapter 5, verse 3, and the first blessing in the Beatitudes. Next time we will go over Matthew 5:4, which is about the second blessing. I pray that we come near to God with humble hearts and as the poor in spirit. Thank you for listening, and we hope you will join us next time as we learn more about the Sermon on the Mount.
0: What do all of you thirst for today? Are you looking for shelter from being weighed down from all the hardships of life? Or are you searching for love or something better because you are feeling lonely? Satan is continuously whispering in our heads that we should fill our thirst with worldly things instead of God. He tells us that we can fill our thirst on our own instead of seeking God. If we continue to seek ourselves instead of God, we will only thirst more. This is because we are not able to fill the broken cisterns that we have made. God is telling us the same thing that He told the Samaritan woman next to the well. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him shall never thirst. But the water that I will give him will become in him a well of water springing up to eternal life. This water will help you to quench your thirst eternally. I hope that we will live our lives only seeking Jesus who is our well of water springing up eternal life This now wraps up our unity in Christ message today I hope to see you again next week and God bless
2: Take my life and let it be Lord to thee. Take my moments and Let them flow and cease the sprays. Take my hands and let them move at the impulse of thy love. Take my feet and let them be swift and